Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, we ease gently into the holidays. Bill Werner helps us kick off the giving season. Tasha Radel checks in with the latest holiday shopping and mailing tips and trends. And I chat with a local author about the surf and bird, Minnesota bands of the 60s, and more. But first, Mark Dornkamp with the Brownfield Ag Radio Network gives us an in-depth look at avian influenza and its impact on the state. Mark, we haven't heard too much about bird flu lately. Is that good news? It sure is, Scott. The last case of avian flu in the state was back in June. I recently caught up with Steve Olson, executive director of the Turkey Growers Association, and he told me, while no news is good news, the industry remains on high alert. The fall migration is still in progress, and we have additional testing that that all of our poultry flocks are doing to detect anything that... early on if if we should get hit with this virus again. But so far, nothing's happened. Uh, We'll stay vigilant, and when we get closer to next spring, we'll we'll continue to to elevate our testing protocols at that point as well. What do you attribute the success to? You know, I I think it's, uh, as the bird health experts have told us, uh, they expect this is a virus that will be around in the wild birds for three to five years. And, you know, there's a lot of theories out there as to, you know, why we haven't seen anything so far this fall. And, And one of those theories is that, you know, the birds, when they leave, Minnesota, they tend to leave quicker than when they come up. As they come up, they go as far as it, it's warm, and then they, they stop for a while. And then when the when it gets warmer farther up north, then they continue to. So they kind of do it in phases. But when they leave, they tend to leave more in mass, and, and hopefully that's a factor. Also, you know, one thing we don't know for sure is that what part of the, what percentage of the wild bird population has already been exposed to this virus, and so they've got immunity and they're not shedding um, you know, in this fall. And so that's one thing. Again, DNR is looking at that, and we're also working with the University of Minnesota to get a better handle on what's going on in the wild bird population. I assume credit, too, goes to the producers. I, a lot of it does. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things that we've uh, focused on is, again, we need to better understand this virus, but we also realize that there's things we can't control, but there are things that we can control. So the growers have been focused on controlling what we can control, and they've looked at their, their farming operations, and they've worked with veterinarians and other, other experts in biosecurity, to look at what can they do to um, to help prevent this virus from getting in, and not only have those methods, you know, will help in this situation, but they'll also help for uh, protecting flock flock health in any situation. So they've made some, you know, it's been some uh, structural changes to their buildings, but it's also been uh, some operational changes in, in making sure that everybody within their system knows uh, what biosecurity is and what role they play in, in helping keep birds healthy. Geographically, you say that the poultry industry is still on high alert, but as you follow migration through the fall and now almost into the winter, where would you put Minnesota as far as the threat level, if you will, and then states south and the different flyways, how they are continuing to be prepared? You know, my crystal ball is not very good, and and if it was, I probably would be resting somewhere warm right now. But as we look at, you know, Minnesota, we've got a lot of turkey population. We've got a high level of turkey population. We've also got a, a lot of lakes. And so we've got a lot of waterfall that are moving through here. And as they move down the, the Mississippi flyway and also ultimately down to Mexico where they winter, they combine with birds from other flyways. And so that's where we think that some of the, the uh, intermingling and the transmission of disease uh, could happen back and forth. So, you know, we, you know, we would look that as, as birds migrate that, you know, what's going on further south of us is going to be something that uh, of, of concern. Is there really a chance for producers to take a breath? I mean, the virus, from what I've been told by you and others, is killed by warmer temperatures and we're 
facing winter and, and cold, wet conditions. So what's the plan of attack here in the next few months, Steve? Yeah, you know, you're right. It, the, this is a virus that, that can survive uh, the freezing temperatures that we've got in the, in the winter in Minnesota. So one thing that we'll be doing, and again, we're working with uh, both DNR and the University of Minnesota, is take a look at those wild birds, those waterfowl that, that winter in Minnesota, because we've got you know, some areas where there's some open water next to power plants and things, and so we'll be looking at testing those to see if we can't pick up this virus in, in those as an indicator. And, and then again, we'll, we'll be looking um, ahead of next spring, so in that February, March time frame for any birds that are coming up uh, earlier and, and maybe an indication of, of carrying the virus. So in the short term, no new cases since June is certainly good news, but longer term, you mentioned three to five years with this virus, so this isn't going away, it sounds like. Uh, no, and we expect it uh, to be around, and one of, it's one of those things where we hope it's not, but we are prepared as if it's uh, going to be as strong or stronger than what we experienced earlier this year. And I think, you know, we've learned a lot. Again, you know, our, our buildings and our biosecurity practices are elevated. They've changed um, to better protect bird health. But we also know how to respond to this quicker. So I think the state and federal and industry will all, you know, once we, if we do get any further introductions, we'll be reacting pretty quickly to help make sure that this virus doesn't have anywhere else to go. And that's one of the lessons we learned from, uh, from this spring is that we had flocks that were tested positive. We had several in some days. And that, that just it got too much to, for us to keep ahead of. But we will, we've changed our tactics to be able to make sure that we're able to stay ahead of it next time. Anything else on this? You know, one of the questions I get asked a lot is, it will, be, will, there be thanks, will there be turkey for Thanksgiving? And, yes, there will be plenty of turkey. Um, and there's a number of reasons. One is that we build the inventory for, for turkey for Thanksgiving throughout the year. So we start earlier in the year, and we put birds into cold storage and continue to build that. And when you look at the overall turkey population in the United States, uh, this is a, a small percentage that was that was impacted by this, and even smaller percentage that are, are have farms that grow for the Thanksgiving market specifically. And then another factor is that even in Minnesota, the growers that we've got that grow for the Thanksgiving market, a number of those were able to get back into production and raise flocks in time for Thanksgiving. So there'll be plenty of birds, and grocers are... Um, are offering discounts, and so there's a great value out there as well. I've heard anywhere from 52 to 99 cents. Steve Olson, Executive Director of the Minnesota Turkey Growers Association. Scott, he also said that all but three of the 108 turkey farms affected by the virus earlier this year have begun restocking birds, and those operations should be back up in the near future. Thanks, Mark. Bill Werner and the Salvation Army are up next when Minnesota Matters returns. Hey, it's Flint Lockwood here from Swallow Falls. My friends and I have just discovered these amazing living foodimals. But wait, we've also discovered a crisis that needs our help. According to my calculations, one in five kids in America struggles with hunger. That's almost 17 million kids. Our mission is to help solve hunger by teaming up with the Feeding America Network to get food to kids facing hunger in communities across the country. Feeding America is a nationwide network of food banks, helping connect children and families who face hunger to billions of pounds of food, reaching shelters, schools, and community centers in every county in America, including yours. Help Flint and the Feeding America network of food banks get food to the people who need it in your community. Find your local Feeding America food bank at feedingamerica.org hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. 
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Hundreds of organizations around Minnesota step up to help those in need this time of year. MNN's Bill Werner is here after talking with folks at one of the most well-known. And Scott, that of course is the Salvation Army, and as is our tradition at this time of the year, we get a quick update from spokeswoman Annette Bauer. This is a really busy season, is it, it is. not, for the Salvation Army? What kind of things have you folks got going on? Well, number one, we're doing big fundraising at this time of the year, and it's to use going into 2016. We set our goals, what we need for the year to start off. And if we don't make those goals, we usually have to start making adjustments and planning to cut back on some services. So having a goal for the Christmas season is a big deal. How big is the need this year? Because we talk about the economy recovering, mm-hmm. and I know that the need was very acute mm-hmm. a few years ago Yes, in, in the middle of the, the Great Recession, mm-hmm. but how is it now? You know, there are certain things that are perennial that never get met, and that's housing assistance, uh, utility assistance. Those things are going to, we, we will never be able to meet all the need. So, and, and food, it's so funny you're talking about the recovery and things. We are continuing to see a constant increase in people who visit our food shelf. Mm. Uh, the number of times they come, the needs that they have, I think what has happened is when they're recovering, they're saying, okay, I can start paying some other bills. I can stay housed, but right now I can't meet all my needs. So they come to a more convenient thing like a food shelf. So we are seeing great increases all over the state in our food shelf use. And then the Salvation Army also operates shelters as right. well, right, for people right. who are in a situation Certainly. where they are homeless. Right. In Rochester, we have some housing that's transitional and permanent supportive housing. In other other areas, we have more transitional housing. Okay. So it's not the shelter that you're that often people think about are things like in Minneapolis Harbor Light. That is a shelter, that emergency shelter. We don't have that in a lot of places. In Mankato, we open up shelter, that emergency shelter, just for the winter months for men and some women, but mostly it's a men's shelter. And so we really rely on getting people into housing, helping with their rent. In fact, just keeping them housed. That's a big deal. Not letting them get homeless in the first place. People are hopping from couch to couch. You hear that all the time. Sometimes they're just barely able to make their rent, and that's where the Salvation Army can come in and, and give some help. And you're, this is a big fundraising time of the year huge, for you. Huge, Red kettles are a big part right. of this? Oh, they're a huge part of it, especially in smaller towns. In fact, that's a big deal that the kettles are sometimes half of the goal for the Christmas campaign. That much? Yes. Wow. In in greater Minnesota, we have about a $4 million campaign goal for Christmas. And nearly half of that, maybe even more, is in kettles alone. In the Twin Cities, $11.6 million goal, um, about $3, three million we're expecting in kettles, right? So so you'll kind of kind of see how that works depending on a, on a smaller community. But the thing about the kettles is that it's sometimes the only place some people give, right? The only time of the year. They're not mailing us a check. They're not put, uh, making an online donation. It's the only time. So if they are not able to give at that kettle, they probably won't give the rest of the year. And this year, we have a little bit of a shorter time. We push back our starting with kettles a little later. Maybe you noticed that. It was a little closer to the Thanksgiving time um, this year. And so we have a little bit shorter time. And we did that because people were saying, 
we really wish you would wait longer. Now, the reason we go early November is just because of the need. We're trying it this year. We're going to see how it goes. We'll let you know. Next year, we might have to push it back up again, but but this year you might have noticed it was just before Thanksgiving. Have you still got uh, openings available for bell ringers? Always. We, oh, we will so. have until Christmas Eve, the day mm-hmm. that we are done, we will have openings. In fact, for instance, in Hibbing, it, there's a dire need. They have 1,500 hours. They have 150 of it covered so far. So boy, we need help. We need it everywhere. Never ever think we have all our hours covered. I guarantee that won't happen. And, and if a person wants to do some mm-hmm. bell ringing, um, what's the best way to Great. match up their hours with mm-hmm. where you have slots? Can you do that online yeah. or call your Online local? is really one of the best ways to do it. SalvationArmyNorth.org. Put your zip code in. You'll get to the location that you need. But right on the front page, we have a Be a Bell Ringer. Click on that electronically. If in your area, there isn't someone with a, if there isn't an electronic way to do it, there'll be a phone number. We will give you the time that you need at that kettle. That will be a huge help. An hour of time, we always say, raises anywhere from $30 to $50 an hour. So if you can't give me $50 for the Salvation Army, spend an hour at a kettle. Okay, well put. Annette Bauer with the Salvation Army. And if folks want any information about mm-hmm. either they want to donate or they want a bell ring, what's yep. that website again? SalvationArmyNorth.org, and you will find stories about how we're helping and how you can help too. Annette Bauer, thanks a lot. Thank you. And Scott, the folks at the Salvation Army are going to be real busy right into the new year. The busier, the better for those who need it. Thanks, Bill. More Minnesota Matters after this. You, my friend, have connections in the government. Yes, you. USA.gov, the official source for government information on thousands of topics. And like any good connection, there's no telling where it can take you. Why, one day you're getting student loan information. Next thing you know, you need job hunting tips. Today's road construction info could have you searching for telecommuting ideas tomorrow. The more you use USA.gov, the more uses you'll find for it. Passport applications, for example. They've been known to lead to a sudden interest in travel advisories. Our new mobile apps will even update you on the go. So whether you have information to get or ideas to give your government, check out USA.gov. Who knows? Lottery results today could lead to retirement planning tomorrow. USA.gov. With the right connections, there's no telling where you can go. Don't you wish that getting your child to eat right, move more, and spend less time in front of a screen could be as easy as pushing a button? It might not be that simple, but you do have more power than you know. And you can maximize that power with proven strategies, tips, and tools from the National Institutes of Health's We Can, or Ways to Enhance Children's Activity and Nutrition program. We Can offers all kinds of resources, including fun recipes and activities the family can do together to show you the way to live a healthier lifestyle. We're not saying it's easy. We are saying that it can be done. Take the first step today. Call 1-866-359-3226 for a free We Can Parents Handbook. And be sure to visit the We Can website at wecan.nhlbi.nih.gov for free information, too. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. 
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. You can pretty much bet Minnesota shopping centers are going to be extremely busy in the days ahead. MNN's Tasha Radel explains why. The unofficial kickoff to the holiday season is here and hundreds of thousands of Minnesotans will be taking part in Black Friday, Small Business Saturday and Cyber Monday. This year's University of St. Thomas annual holiday spend survey shows us the average Minnesota household will spend $850 this holiday season. I asked marketing professor David Brennan who exactly will be cashing in. There's a couple different ways to look at that. And the, the one way would be to take a look in terms of are they spending it in stores or are they spending it online? And increasingly, uh, people are spending it more online. If we started off back when we did our survey in 2002, the Internet was 7.3% uh, of uh, total spend. That, is, that number is up to 38.5% this year, which places it just below uh, malls and downtowns as an aggregate amount. So I think what we're seeing is that, that teeter-totter is shifting from uh, store-based retailing and particularly malls toward the Internet. And, you know, I know we kind of look at the Twin Cities area. Do you think this will hold relatively about the same in greater Minnesota, or will that be down? Well, there's some good things and some, some troubling things in terms of uh, the outstate area. First of all, uh, in terms of it was a wonderful crop season this year. You couldn't have asked for a better deal because the rain came on a very systematic basis of every week or every two weeks in sufficient quantities to have uh, near record uh, yields. On the other hand, when we start looking at prices, corn is still trading in that roughly uh, $3.60 level, which is about half of what it was four years ago. When we look at soybeans, a little bit stronger uh, in that $9 to $9.50 a bushel uh, range, uh, which is still down from uh, what it was again four years ago. So uh, it's good news that higher yields, but the offset to that is that uh, the prices have not moved some on a net basis, probably uh, a little bit more positive than it has been. But we also had, in terms of the uh, avian flu, which impacted turkeys, but also as far as chickens. And certainly a lot of the enterprises that were associated with that were hard hit. And that's not just in terms of those that are raising them, but the people that work there, and also in terms of the feed uh, that is um, uh, associated with it and many of the other vendors that help support that industry. So um, probably on a net net basis, uh, probably uh, down a little bit compared to a year ago. And you know, I know we've been doing this for years. Was there anything that kind of jumped out at you with this report, Dave, by any chance? Yeah, there. There. Yeah, it's a good question. Well, one of the things that uh, jumps out is we look at in terms of stores that p people plan to shop. We also ask what websites that they plan to shop. And last year, Amazon was far and ahead. Uh, way ahead of the others. In fact, we indexed it, so uh, Amazon was at 100. Most of the others were at 10 or less, so really not uh, really part of the conversation. This year, on the other hand, most of the Amazon was number one, but the others uh, had moved up into the 40s range. So uh, I think what we can see is as far as consumers are beginning to look more at the bricks-and-mortar retailer online sites with increasing interest. Uh, and I think some of that is that they've uh, 
become a lot more legitimate and transparent in terms of their marketing efforts. Thanks again to University of St. Thomas marketing professor David Brennan. We're going to switch gears a little bit. For those of you planning to send a package overseas, you better get your shopping done sooner rather than later. Pete Nowacki is spokesman for the United States Postal Service Minnesota Division and says there are a couple of important deadlines coming up. Letters and packages, depending on where it's going, for most of, the, most of them need to be out by either December 3rd or December 10th. Uh, most APOs, FBOs are, are December 10th. That information is available at USPS.com. If you want to take a look at our website, it lines, up, lines it up specifically for different APO and FPO numbers. And I'm assuming this is a pretty busy time of year for you folks there at the post office. We're just starting to kick into gear. It's going to be a uh, you know another banner holiday season, we think, especially with packages. We're looking at uh, you know another increase of about 10% in package volume over what we had last year. So a lot of folks out there shopping online and shipping shipping with us, and uh, you know we'll do our best to make sure we get everything there in time for Christmas. Pete, are you offering any I guess specials uh, for military families over the holidays? We do have we do have a special deal for folks sending things uh, overseas to military. It's a APO FPO special priority mail flat rate box, and it gets a two dollar discount over or. It's a $2 discount off of the regular price to send priority mail. So that's, you know, a really nice deal. It's one specific size box. The other, another thing that we have is called a military care kit, and that's based on the items that are most frequently requested by military families. And what this kit contains is a couple of those special APO, FPO flat rate boxes, a couple of standard medium-sized flat rate boxes, priority mail tape, address labels, and the appropriate customs forms. So everything you need to get a package ready to send to someone overseas, it's all right there in the kit. People can obtain it by dialing 800-610-8734, or they can go to our website and just just punch in military care kit in the search box and it'll take you to a link where you can order one. That's all the time we have for this week. Thanks again to both of my guests, University of St. Thomas marketing professor David Brennan and Pete Nowacki with the United States Postal Service, Minnesota Division. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. We'll be back with more Minnesota Matters after this. Son, uh, can you hand me that big screwdriver? This one, Dad? Uh, no, that's a wrench. Uh, I need the long one close to your foot. Why? Uh, because I need to loosen a screw. Why? Because I have to change the oil filter. Why? Because I love you! <laughs> the smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. Alright. Now pass me the new filter. Why? Ha <laughs> <laughs> very funny. <laughs> Take time to be a dad today. For more information, dial 1-877-432-3411 or visit us at www.fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Everybody's heard about the bird. Bird, bird, bird. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. In 1963, Minnesota group The Trashmen had a hit song on the charts in Surfin' Bird. It's a strange song that somehow remains in the public consciousness today and has been covered by the Ramones and featured memorably on the TV show Family Guy. 
I recently spoke with Rick Chefchik about his great new book, Everybody's Heard About the Bird, the true story of 1960s rock and roll in Minnesota, which covers the quick rise and fall of the trash men and much more. Can you tell me, and maybe for our listeners who are unfamiliar, everybody's heard about the bird. What is the bird? The Bird is a reference to a song called Surfin' Bird, which was a uh, number four hit in the country for a band called The Trashmen out of North Minneapolis. Uh, it, it topped the uh, Twin Cities record charts on both WDGY and KDWB in uh, late 1963, and in 1964, early in January, it, uh, it was poised to be the number one record in the country. It was uh, perched at number four, uh, Bill Deal, local DJ at WDGY, had told the band, his sources said that it'd be number one the following week on Billboard. But uh, when that next chart came out, the um, Surfing Bird was uh, not number one. The number one song was I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles. And did that uh, alter the course of destiny for, for the Trash Men? It did. Uh, that was their high watermark in terms of uh, national chart success. Their follow-up bird dance beat that was pretty similar to Surfing Bird, uh, and it was written by uh, the band's manager George Garrett. That one peaked at number thirty uh, in uh, uh, March, I believe. And by that time, the Beatles had really taken over the charts, and other British invasion bands had followed. So the course of American music really was changed, not only the course of the Trashman's career. You know, Rick, some would say the song is repetitive. They may call it a novelty song. Uh, some have called it grating. So I'm, I'm wondering, why all these years later are, are we still talking about that song? I mean, it does stick with us. Well, there's never been anything like it. Uh, except for the follow-up that I mentioned, um, Bird Dance Beat, which was almost too much of an imitation. Uh, You can look at the entire history of of pop music and not find another record that really uh, approaches that level of uh, enthusiasm, nonsense, and yet hard-driving rhythm. Uh, Steve Warrer was a remarkably um, powerful drummer. And that's the thing that I always listen to when I hear that song. I just, I love the drumming on that. And uh, when it was popular in in the late 60s, I I mean, uh, late 63 and early 64, uh, rock and roll had become kind of soft. Uh, There really wasn't an awful lot of, of hard hard-charging rhythm to the songs that were uh, popular on the dance uh, floors and uh, uh, and on the uh, record charts. And plus the vocal sound of it is just, it's, it, it's funny. I mean, it, it kind of brings a smile to your face because, uh, it, you know, it's not meant to be taken seriously. Rick, if the Trashmen were heading towards the top of the charts when the Beatles kind of took things over, the Trashmen must have been on the Beatles' radar. Did they ever say anything about the Trashmen or the song Surfing Bird, or did they ever weigh in on it? Not about the song as such, but when the Beatles first came to America in January of uh, February, actually, of 1964, someone asked them uh, what they thought of the Trashmen, because... Obviously, that was the uh, you know number one rock band in America at that particular time, and Ringo said uh, we don't like the Trashmen, uh, and the guys in the Trashmen have never forgotten that comment. I, I don't believe Ringo elaborated on it, and it's pretty clear that what he was talking about was that this was a competitive band, and the Beatles were nothing if not competitive. 
So Ringo, to say that, obviously he didn't know them personally, um, probably wasn't aware of any of the other songs that they had uh, um, performed. But, uh, you know, the the Trashmen took that personally at the time. It, it kind of irked them that uh, um, here's this band from England who's uh, saying that they don't like the Trashmen without even really knowing much about them. I mean, now, as, uh, you know, decades have gone by, they, they just laugh about it. But it was, um, you know, it, I, I think it kind of stung at the time. You went into the book with an idea of what you wanted to cover. Once you were finished, what was the biggest surprise to you? Well, uh, let's start with the first chapter, uh, actually the introduction. Um, I asked Tony Andreessen, the lead guitarist of the uh, Trashmen, uh, if there was a moment where he could recall being on stage and just being overwhelmed by the, the, the crowd reception. I mean, if he had ever had that, that rock star moment where he said, boy, this is bigger than anything I'd ever imagined. And he pointed right away to a concert that the Trashmen played in January of 64, at the St. Paul uh, Auditorium, where uh, police estimate there were 17,000 in the building and another 6,000 outside the building. The, uh, it was the uh, WDGY Winter Carnival Spectacular, and the Trashmen were the headliners. There was another 10 bands on the group, and uh, you know the music was playing all day. But uh, it was definitely the Trashmen who were the, uh, the featured attraction. And it was, you know, for them, it was like being the Beatles, even though they didn't know who the Beatles were at that time, that there was, you know, 17,000 screaming uh, teenagers. They couldn't hear themselves. They they couldn't believe the reaction that they had created. And I didn't, you know, I was not living in St. Paul at the time. I was up in Duluth, so I wasn't even aware of this concert. But you have to contrast what happened that night to when Elvis Presley played that same building uh Seven years earlier, in 1956, he only drew 3,000. So that that's a moment in Minnesota rock history that uh, um, I wasn't aware of, but I was very happy to find a photo of and be able to feature that in my book. Well, Rick, I can't thank you enough for sharing the details of those times and those memories of Minnesota music. Thank you, Scott. Nice talking to you. That's going to do it for this week. Tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.